We are in Genesis today, so if you have a Bible, you can open up Genesis. We're, as uh, <clears throat> at the very beginning, Jordan said, we're in the middle of a, a series called Epic. Um, it's a study through the first 12 chapters of Genesis. Basically, what we're doing as we go through the book of Genesis, the first 12 chapters, is thinking about some of the life's biggest questions. Uh, marriage, where did evil come from? How are we supposed to handle that? The biggest kind of questions that we have, and most of those biggest questions are, are being answered in Genesis 1 through 12. So, I mean, most of the things that we, we want to know of why things happen or where things are going on, what's going on in life, and what are some of the big questions, they're all there. So that's what we've been doing, is looking at Genesis uh, chapters 1 through 12, getting answers to those particular questions. Uh, it doesn't answer maybe every one of your life's questions, but it'll certainly answer most of life's biggest questions. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to Genesis. If you don't have one, look underneath you. There's a Bible there. Take that with you. Keep it. Genesis just means beginning, so it's in the beginning of the book. Um, so you can just open up to page, I don't know, probably four, five, something like that. You'll be at Genesis chapter uh, four. So uh, I want to say one little thing before we get going, and then we'll, uh, we'll pick up in Genesis chapter 4. Uh, picking up from, I wasn't here last week, but our other elder, uh, uh, Jack, was here, and he was preaching uh, through Genesis chapter 3, which is basically uh, the fall of man. Where, why did we fall? Where did it come from? That's basically the very first sin and why we are all sinners now. And as he was going through it, uh, as he finished, he, he pointed out one particular thing that I want to make sure we all are there and we all can kind of be on the same page as we go into Genesis chapter 4. So um, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, right after Adam and Eve had sinned and God's uh, talking about the consequences of that particular sin, he makes this promise in Genesis three fifteen. It's called Proto-Evangelium. Proto meaning first, evangelium being gospel. It's the first time in the Bible the gospel of a coming Savior is given. And it's in 3.15, it says, I will put enmity, that's strife. He's talking to uh, them, and he's saying, between you and the woman. So he's saying that to the serpent. Between you, serpent, which kind of an indicator of the devil and the woman, I'm going to put strife between the two of you, and between your offspring and her offspring. So all the people that work for the devil versus the one offspring that, it says, between her offspring, that's literally seed. So that her offspring is kind of this big word that sticks out there in Genesis 3 that we're supposed to be looking at through the entire Bible, kind of referring back to, oh, there's an offspring, there's an offspring, and there's going to be enmity between those two. But look what it says about this offspring, because it's very important. It says, and he um, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So that second phrase, you shall bruise his heel, is speaking of the devil's work causing a bruise to the heel, if you will, to the offspring. And we know, looking back through the New Testament, that that's talking about the devil's work of doing everything he can to get Christ on the cross, where he died, but then came back to resurrection. So the bruising of the heel is certainly a smaller kind of thing compared to the line before that, he shall bruise your head. So bruising your head is a final crushing. That's whenever God's going to take the big, big Genesis 3 boot and just... Stick, the, stick it right there in the he, uh, devil's head, and he's just destroyed forever, and we live forever. So we see that there's, there's enmity and strife between the two, but one day the devil's going to bruise the heel of Jesus. That's the cross, death, death, burial, and resurrection. And then ultimately Christ is going to defeat Satan, sin, and death. We know that from Revelation, etc., where he's going to bruise his head. So what we're then looking for, and Adam and Eve are looking for, is then, okay... We were in Genesis 2. Over here is Genesis 2. This is where perfection was. This is where they were in perfect relationship with God. Like, this is awesome. Perfect relationship with God. We get to know you. We get to know you more intimately than we ever could. There's nothing that separates us from this amazing relationship that man has with God. 
This is what's really kind of the longing of every one of our own hearts. We want to know and be known by perfectly by our creator, except there's something that breaks it. And so they're in this relationship with him and it's awesome. And then all of a sudden, because they willingly choose to, to, to sin against God, willingly choose to disobey, that relationship is then broken off. And God says, I will restore that amazing relationship w- with you one day, but it's coming through an offspring. And so Adam and Eve are like, coming through an offspring, coming through an offspring. We know what this offspring, this promised offspring is going to do so much. We're going to be able to be able to experience this amazing relationship. So the entire Bible, as Jack said, is just us looking for this offspring, trying to find who this offspring is because he's the man, like he restores everything. And we want to know who this offspring is. That's what the Bible is there for. That's what the rest of the Bible is is doing, is trying to point us to the offspring, the seed. And that's Christ, the one who does all these things, ultimately is, has his bruise healed uh, or, or struck, but he's going to defeat Satan, sin, and death, therefore bringing us all salvation and restoring us all back to this perfect relationship with our creator. So Adam and Eve are like on the edge of their seats, like offspring, we need that bad. We need the offspring bad because right where we are right now, we're cast out of Eden. We have no restored relationship like we had we're we're longing for that relationship to be restored so that we can have um uh, a a perfect relationship with god and so we need that offspring we need that offspring bad so that's where they are and that's where we are in the narrative so genesis 4 is they're 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 longing for it and they're waiting for it they're deeply wanting it and then we're going to go into genesis 4 so let's pray and then we'll jump into genesis 4 lord thank you so much for your word uh thank you so much for jack Uh, being here last week and faithfully preaching Genesis 3. We thank you for your word and what it does that as we read it and as we see and experience what it can do in our lives that we realize that your word has tremendous power. And so we know that there's power this morning. It has nothing to do with me and everything to do with your word. So would you come now and speak powerfully to us through your word. And God, I pray that as we do that, that we would have renewed desire to obey you, renewed desire to walk with you, um, and renewed trust in your goodness and faithfulness to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Six years ago, we had a son. Oh, we've got a lot now, but at one point, we had a son. It was a firstborn son. He was born January the 9th. Um, that's easy to remember um, because we celebrated each year, um, even though I have five. But he was born January the 9th. And I remember um, 20 days after that, January the 29th, six years ago, was the season premiere of Lost uh, Season 4. Season 4. And so the reason why that stuck in my head is because um, back then I was a much better husband than I was now. Anyway, so my point is saying that Christy, uh, you know, Christy feeds the baby. There's not really much I can do. I can't help out in that, in that area. Uh, but I used to, whenever she would feed Aiden throughout the night, uh, be up there with her and talking with her. I was like, hey, you know, anything I can do? Let me get a pillow for you and stuff like that. Now I just fake sleep. Like, she thinks I'm sleeping. I don't have to do anything. Maybe I, she'll wake me up and go get her some water. I'm just kidding by that. But my point is, um, as we were, you know, I was helping her out and we were, we were feeding the baby, we went into what is a binge watch of, the, of, of Lost. And I, don't look at me like that, because I know you do it. Every one of you binge watch. I know you've like watched six seasons of something on Netflix in like four days, and you're like, we've neglected our children completely. But man, we're all caught up. Um, so my, my point is, we went, we did, what happened was, we're sitting there, um, and we saw ABC have this little uh, thing that says, on January 29th, 
season four of Lost starts, and we hadn't watched Lost. I'm like, Lost? Um, it's, it's pretty obvious. Like, why watch Lost? The show's called Lost. They're never going to be found. Why even watch it? And I was like, well, let's watch it anyway. So we went to abc.com, and we said, all right, we've got three seasons to watch. I don't know, it was like 75 shows or something, but we've got 20 days. So we're going we're gonna to try it. We're going to see if we can, by the time we get up to season four, like we're ready to go. We don't have to watch abc.com. Like we can watch it on the TV show. And we're like, let's do it. Let's do it. And so we did it. So we started watching. And it always happens. And some of you who binge watch, you'll know. You, you'll, you're right here with me. You get there and you just finish and it's like a major cliffhanger. You're like, oh, what happens next? And you look at the clock and you're like, okay, it's uh, 1220, 1240 minutes. One more, one more. Let's do one more. Let's do one. More. So you hit play and you're like, oh, and you start doing the math. If I, that means I go to bed at one, not twelve twenty, and that's basically the same amount of sleep. So let's watch one more. And then it's like one, and you're like, all right, one more, one more. But that's it. Then we're going to bed. Uh, but you know what I'm saying. Um, so literally, I, I saw an article this week that uh, they're literally rewriting shows now because of binge watching. Uh, that people would just watch whole seasons at a time, basically. They're literally, so they're creating longer arcs throughout shows instead of kind of just one little show arc. They're trying to create it because they know that we're going to remember everything that happened three, three shows ago, and it has to be like perfect, and it has to be all in order because we just watched it like 40 minutes ago. We know what happened. And so they're like, they're, watch, they're, they're, they're actually changing the way that they write shows. Um, and the reason why I bring all this up is, and I know every single one of us is, is binge watching Netflix, and we probably need to repent of all that. Um, but my point is, the reason why we do that is because we love stories. Like, we're drawn to them. And this is innate in us. We're, we're wired to love stories because our, our lives are stories. So um, the Bible is filled with these kind of narratives, these stack narratives that go through, but it's all still one big arc. And our lives are living out stories. You, every single one of you, you may not think it's interesting, but your life is living out a story. Your life is going to work and having a relationship or maybe it's a broken relationship or you're worried about your kids or none of y'all probably have kids or some of y'all do, but most of y'all probably don't. But so you're worried about your brother or your sister and your relationship with your parents and if you're going to pass college and things like that. So you've got all these kind of things that are going on and we're living actually in our lives of stories. And so the reason why I bring all that up is I want you to realize that as we're reading Genesis, these are stories after stories um, and instead of maybe binge watching Netflix so much, we should binge read the Bible because it's the same kind of thing. This, this drawing us in, we need to see what's going to happen. The writer's intentionally writing little cliffhangers for us to be like, oh, what's going to happen? And you need to keep reading to be able to see because we're drawn into the stories to know what's happening. And the better thing about binge reading rather than binge watching is this is God's word. And as we see the stories that are going on in here, as we understand what's happening, these things actually apply to our lives. These things actually speak directly to what's going on to us. And so, you know, you're binge-watching Lost. You can't say, oh, Kate and Jack, were they ever going to get together? And what's the deal with Sawyer? And uh, you're saying all this stuff. You can't, I mean, that's not the Bible. That's not God. And you can't, like, well, God wants me to know because of John Locke, blah, blah, blah. But with this, like, we can read this and we can say, I'm seeing stuff going on here. Therefore, I can see direct applications about how I'm supposed to live my life. So... The reason why I say all that is because we're going to look at this. And as we look at this story, um, the big main idea of chapter 4 is this unwavering faithfulness of God in the lives of his children. The reason why we need to know that is because as we see God's unwavering faithfulness in the lives of his children, that's directly applicable to all of us. We can realize that God has been unwavering in his faithfulness to us. 
No matter the circumstances, no matter the situations, no matter the ups and downs of life, whether we feel like he is or whether we feel like he isn't, he is unwaveringly faithful in your life. So as we look at this, I want you to uh, see some of those things. What, what we're not going to do, we're not going to read the whole thing together because I feel like y'all will clock out after uh, three minutes in and it's probably a long read. So what I'm going to do is just go verse by verse through and you'll get the feel of it. But most of us are probably familiar with Cain and Abel, the very first two children of Adam and Eve. Um, so we're going we're gonna to pick up here at verse 1 and uh, we're going to get it all. But I need to switch these because that's not how it was first service and I'll be confused. Because I, I need to, all right, now I'm ready. So verse one, uh, it says, Now Adam knew Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. So this, this knew is not just this, uh, when Adam knew his wife, this isn't just like a, a biblical euphemism just to kind of make it say he knew her. There's a whole lot more than that. Certainly it is that, but it's a whole lot more than that as well. They, they came together as husband and wife <clears throat> and produced a child, but from that there's more than that as in, we saw in Genesis 2, 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. They knew everything there was to know about each other and had no shame. And in this way, he knew her. And as it says that he's knowing her, this means he understands her. He has a deep understanding of her and vice versa. So there's more than just uh, they knew each other as in they, they had uh, a baby together. It's, it's also saying that as husband and wife, they knew everything about one another. And from this... Uh, came and bore a son. We need to stop here and realize we were just on the heels of Genesis 3. All the text, the cliffhanger of Genesis 3 is like, need the offspring! Is the offspring coming? All of a sudden, Moses, bang, verse like right there in the first minute, we're like, oh, there is an offspring. Maybe this is hope. Maybe this is gonna, we're gonna get to the end of the 40 minutes in just a second. But here we see all of a sudden, God is showing Maybe this is the offspring. Here it comes. And it says, and she conceived and bore uh, Cain. And then she literally says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. This is basically her saying, I just made a man. Look at that. Adam, I made a man. And what she's wanting to do is, think about it. No one had ever made a man before, right? It's not like she's like, hey, you know what I did the other day? I made a man. And they're like, oh, we did that last week. We already did Lamaze. No, There's no woman saying, big deal, Eve, we've already done that. Like, she can actually say, I was the first one to make a man. How about that? So whenever we say it, all you girls say it, she can say, oh, I've been there and done that. I was the first one. I got the first. But anyway, the whole point is this. Her wording of, of saying, I have gotten a man, can be understood as, I just made a man. And it's supposed to, as we look at the other chapters where God is making man, she's trying to sound like God. She's trying to say, I just made a man. God, you made a man, and I just made a man. We're kind of alike one another. How about that? So she's comparing herself to God. I'll show you in the text why I say that. Look what it says. She said, I got the help of the man, because you're going to say, she said it with the help of the Lord. Yeah, it's kind of like, I made a man, and maybe you helped. That's what it's kind of like. Look what it says. I just gotten a man with the help of the Lord. That's when Cain was born. Look at the very end of the chapter when Seth is born. And notice there are completely different language whenever Seth is born. We've gone through the whole horrible story of, of Cain and Abel. And then Seth is given. Verse 25, Adam knew his wife again. She bore a son and called him Seth. For she said, notice this strikingly different language. God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. Not I made a man. Look what I did with the help of God. But instead, God did it. God did the whole thing. 
But in verse 1 over here, we have her pride kind of elevated, saying, look what I did. I'm kind of like you, God. Look what I did. So here's the first thing I want us to see when we're talking about God's faithfulness in our lives and the things that are happening, that he is always unwaveringly faithful to be in your life. Whenever things are happening in your life, we need to realize that those are things that are happening because of God. First thing that I want you to see is God's faithfulness must be acknowledged. She did not, in the sense that she should, acknowledge this, this uh, faithfulness of God to keep his promise. At least that we're thinking this is the promise. We're thinking, offspring's coming, bang, here's the offspring. So she instead thinks that she did it. So that means as you're going through life, uh, if we're going to apply it to our lives, as you're going through life, whenever you got a promotion and you worked hard and you got it, or you did something and you built something and you did this, you can say, look what I did. Everybody take notice. What we should do is not be like that, but instead realize the Lord did this and he did it through me. Therefore, I should be far more humble and I should acknowledge that the, the sovereign hand of God has been here with me and that God has been faithful and therefore I should acknowledge that he's the one doing these things through me and he deserves the glory, not me. So Eve has a little bit of a, woohoo, look at me. Look what I did. No one's done this before. And we should not be like that in our own lives. We should not think that just because we accomplished something that we get the glory for it. Instead, God gets the glory for doing it through us. And we should be thankful that the Lord has been so kind to us, not braggadocious and prideful and think that, thinking that we done, did it. So immediately we have Cain um, bore to her. And again, she bore his brother Abel. So this, again, it doesn't mention a conception uh, happening again. So some commentators say this means that they're twins. And some commentators say, no, this means, you know, two separate. We, we don't really know, but it could be that they were twins. It doesn't really matter. Uh, then again, she bore her brother Abel. So we've got Cain and we've got Abel. Cain literally means um, here he is or acquired or I have gotten. I now have possession of. Look what, look what I have done. I have possessed this. Here he is. Abel literally means vapor or, or breath. It's actually more closer to breath, but like vapor, like James. So this is the equivalent of if I had a son and I named him Short Life Chambers. <laughs> like, thanks for, that, thanks for that, Dad. Why did you have to name me Abel? You had to name me Short Life why didn't you name me like strong and I can beat up Cain? Uh, I don't know what their last name is. Make up a last name. I don't know. Uh, Eden. Like, why didn't you give me something like a, a great last name? But instead, they're like, we've got Cain. Here he is. And we've got short life. So good luck with that, Abel. Hope that's going to go well for you. And obviously it doesn't. Um, so we go into verse 2. And as we go into verse 2, it says, and again, she bore her brother Abel. Now, <clears throat> Abel, we're, we're, we're jumping forward in their life to vocation. So we totally missed their childhood. We have no idea what kind of children they were, but we're jumping straight to adulthood. Baby childhood. That's just the way the writer wants us to, to go through the narrative. And it says, now Abel was a keeper of the sheep. So Abel was a shepherd. Cain was a worker of the ground. Cain was a farmer. Um, that's important because in verse 3 after that, they're going to bring offerings to God. And the offerings that they bring are directly related to the vocation that's assigned to them in verse 2. In verse 2, their, their uh, vocations, Abel was a shepherd, Cain was a worker of the ground. Verse 3, time for offerings. The offerings are directly related to what they were. Verse 3, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. So here we see that they bring offerings, which means there's something innate in them. This is all before Exodus. 
You know, Exodus, when they're commanded to do certain things, you have the law, and this is what the offerings and the sacrifices all look like. There's something inside of them, innate, that they just know. The Lord has done something. The Lord has given. Therefore, I am to bring something to him in response. Here, it's, it's speaking in, in the terms of offerings. Um, so <clears throat> what I don't want us to, to think is this. I don't want us to think that because Abel's offering uh, was an animal and Cain's offering was not an animal, that's the reason why they weren't accepted. We're going to see that they weren't accepted because they're directly according to their vocation. The Lord wants you to bring something directly according to your vocation. So it's not because Cain brought vegetation that his wasn't acceptable and Abel brought uh, an animal blood sacrifice and that's why his was. And the reason why is because for us it means um, our offerings are acceptable wherever our station in life is. If you're a farmer, you're a shepherd, which you're probably none of those, or whatever you do, God wants you, whatever your vocation is, to take what you get and bring to him portions of it. Now, you can obviously see that there's a direct correlation with offerings. You know, we have offerings at the end of the service, and God wants you to give that. But I think there's more to that. There's more than just uh, talking about offerings. I think it's bigger than that. Look what it says. Um, But intuitively they know that they're supposed to bring an offering to God based on the portions that they receive. And it says, in the course of time, Cain brought an offering, notice what it says, to the Lord, an offering, just an offering, of the fruit of the ground. So he just has fruit of the ground, picks an offering from it, and brings it. Notice how that's the wordings in contrast to Abel. Abel brought the firstborn of his flock, and, their fat, and he brought the fat portions. That's the good stuff. The fat is the P-H-A-T in the Bible. Like, you bring the fat, you bring the P-H-A-T. You're bringing the good stuff. So we can see it's not the fact that Abel brought an animal and Cain brought vegetation, but it's instead what they brought. Does that make sense? If Cain would have brought the first fruits of the stuff that he got from the ground, that would have been good. But he just brought an offering. But Abel, he brought the fat stuff. He brought the good stuff. When you're south, we eat the fat. Like, we we chew on it. It's the good stuff. It's the best part. I'll make you throw up 10 minutes later, but it's the best part. Um, So he brought the firstborn of his flock and the fat portions. And then we, we see immediately right after that what happens. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Immediately we can see it right there. So the second thing that I want you to see is God's faithfulness in our lives in providing for us jobs, providing for us sustenance, providing for us anything that we have. You get to live in this country. You get to live in this year. You weren't born in, you know, middle of nowhere in the 1500s and get to live like 20 years and that's it with no teeth. Like you get to live here and you have dentists and all this kind of stuff. Amazing kind of stuff that we get to live here in this particular country. Freedom of religion. Can go eat a good steak if you want or if you can't you have to eat ramen noodles but that's better than what you know eating leaves in the 1500s right? So like we get things that are better and so we should be thankful for our station in life. Whatever it is whether we think people have more than us or less than us or whatever we should have a heart that's grateful. God did this and therefore It demands then for God's faithfulness, demands our best worship. That's the second thing I want you to see. So I'm not just talking about offerings. Of course, God's faithfulness in your life demands that you bring your best offerings. Whatever that might be. And I I would say the Lord can work at that. But more than that, it means that God's faithfulness demands our best offerings. our, Our best worship. I want to give the Lord my best worship. Whenever I leave today, I want to give the Lord my best worship. I mean, we can... We can easily apply this to several things in our life. Your Bible reading, your prayer life, your relationships, 
God wants your best worship in your Bible reading. He doesn't want, like, right before you go to bed and you're all tired, like, I'm going to read uh, the picker down mode, all right, First Chronicles, Berechus, dead. Like, that's, that's not bringing our best to God. In our prayer life, he wants us to bring our best. In our relationships, he wants us to bring our best worship to him. Therefore, we're going to pursue people and love them and not stomp all over them and take advantage of them. But because of God, we want to bring our best modes of worship to the way we interact with people. So we, there's all kinds of ways we can apply this. But what, what we need to see is God's faithfulness in our lives demands our best worship. And it doesn't just mean when we sing. It doesn't just mean like we're going to really, really shut out people and move away and sing the, our loudest and give our best worship. It, it, it means that, but so much more. So much more. God's faithfulness in your life demands your best worship. So we, we see in the text um, just a small little portion of why Abel's was, was acceptable. Cain brought an offering. Abel brought the firstborn of his flock. Cain didn't bring the first fruits. But other than that, there's not a whole lot of answer, really, to why um, Abel's was acceptable. Because it just says, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but no regard for Cain and his offering. And then it just goes about how Cain got mad. So it's helpful for us then to, to try to understand a little bit more. All right, what was it then? We're asking the question, what was it then about the offering of Abel that was so good versus the offering of Cain that was so bad? Why was Abel's accepted, not Cain's? Salehammer, looking at this, he's a commentator, he says, worship pleasing to God is worship that springs from a pure heart. So he's looking at this and saying, the worship Abel had of God, our best worship, Abel gave his best worship to God, Cain did not. Um, There's something about the pure heart worship of Abel that's in stark contrast to the pure heart worship of Cain, uh, or or the non-pure heart worship of Cain. So we're asking ourselves, what is it that's going on? It's not just that um, it's not because Abel brought a, a, an animal that bloodshed, but instead there's other things. So the best thing I think we can do, we can look in the text and all we see is first fruits or firstborn versus offering. But here's the awesome thing. We get to read the New Testament. Like the people in the Old Testament didn't get to read the New Testament, but we do. We have this awesome gift that as the writers of the Bible were writing, <clears throat> we live in the year 2000, 2000 years ago, other New Testament writers inspired by the Holy Spirit looked back at Genesis chapter 4, and they wrote things. And so if we ever want to understand really anything in the Old Testament, but here we can say this, anything that happened, our best thing to do is, if I want to understand that, go to the New Testament and see if any of these writers wrote anything about them. And if they did, I can read it, and they are the best commentators to understand the Old Testament because they're, like, inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's pretty important, right? If, they, if God told them, kind of, write this about the Old Testament, we can trust that that's right. So... Here's the great news. In three separate times in the New Testament, the New Testament writers explain to us with even more depth what's going on with Cain and Abel and why Abel's offering was more acceptable than Cain's. So I'm going to go through those decently fast. You don't need to flip. Just listen to them. One's in Hebrews um, in chapter 11. So we can already guess. Like if you know what chapter 11 is, the hall of faith, then you're like, oh, I bet it was faith. Yes, you're right. So Hebrews chapter 11, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. So the writer of Hebrews says that Abel offered by faith, that means Cain did not, and as he offered it, it was commended as righteous, meaning Cain's was not. God commended him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. 
So there we can already see that Abel's sacrifice was acceptable, not Cain's, because it was a righteous offering and Cain's wasn't, but also because Abel expressed faith in God and was obeying God and Cain did not serve God in faith. So there's the first one. Another one's in 1 John 3. It says, We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. So now we can see even something else, that Abel's uh, works were actually righteous works, but Cain's works were not. And it even says that Cain was of the evil one. So from the beginning, Cain's heart was devoted over to the serpent, but Abel's wasn't. So we can already see there's another reason. Cain's heart was, was for the devil. He wanted to do the devil's deeds. Um, in contrast, James Boyce says, Cain's murder of Abel is a perfect contrast to Christ. Cain murders his brother. However, Christ, in perfect contrast, is the one that gives himself up, gives his own life up for his brother. So we want to be, in essence, like Christ, not like Cain. In your own dealings with your brothers and sisters, neighbors, etc., you want to be like Christ, willing to give your own life up, not have a murderous heart like Cain. So we, we should love one another. And that's not what was present in the heart of Cain. One other place is in Jude verse 11. It says, Woe to them, for they, he's talking about false teachers in Jude, um, walked the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake uh, of gain to Balaam's heir and perished in Korah's rebellion. I know that you don't understand all that, but let's just kind of, let's, let's, you know, what does that mean? This is what it means. Cain is, Cain is portrayed by the writer of by Jude as a selfish person seeking gain at any cost, which means Abel was not. Calvin says that Cain conducted himself um, as hypocrites are accustomed to do, namely that he wished to appease God as one discharging a debt by eternal sacrifices without the least intention of dedicating himself to God. Meaning so, God, in order for me to be right, transaction system. I need to give you some stuff. You're going to be happy. I'll come to you later. Whenever there's another transaction, I'm in debt. Pay the debt. Everything's over. But he didn't want to actually give his life over. As we said, that what we need to do, realize is that God's faithfulness demands our worship, not some mentality that we're in some kind of transaction with God. For Abel, it wasn't a transaction. For Abel, it's, God, everything's yours. I'm just going to give you my best worship. I'm, I'm going to by faith trust you, and I'm going to live for you. And what, did, what was Cain's reaction to that? What did Cain think about that? So those are the three New Testament texts that speak to it. But what was Cain's reaction? The end of verse 5 tells us, Cain was very angry and his face fell. If you have kids, like, we're not going to be able to go to fill in the blank. Oh, you know, this is, sorry, you know, something happened. Your brother's arm's broken. What can we do? Oh, why did he break his arm? Ah, like, so that's what's going on here. Why did you like his, my, his thing? I'm very angry and I'm going to pout. And so the Lord, it, it, this is interesting. Um, we, if you know the story, you just think, okay, that's it. So Cain runs out and kills his brother. Actually, that's not it. Notice before he goes out and, and, and does that, there, we have verse 6 and 7. This is quite interesting. This is actually very interesting because the author is wanting us to see after the angry, negative response and the face falling, God is not just going to say, well, I guess that's the way you're going to act, Cain. See you later, and runs off. Instead, notice this, the when I say unwavering faithfulness of God, I don't just mean to his own children, but I mean even to the pagans that reject him. God is going to now go pursue Cain 
He's going, he's going to go to Cain and have instruction and advice to him. He knows Cain's heart. He knows what's going to happen. And he's trying to go to him in mercy and realizing what's going to happen. And notice this. Cain's faith fell. You didn't give a good offering, Cain. And you know you didn't give a good offering. And instead of saying, well, I guess that's the way it is, God in his mercy comes to him in verse 6. Don't miss that. God comes to people that rebel against him. That's all of our story. Verse 6. Then the Lord said to Cain, that means God in his mercy went to Cain even though he was angry, even though he knew what he was going to do, and said, why are you angry? This isn't like a question that God didn't know the answer to. It's kind of like in verse, in chapter 3, whenever they went and hid themselves, and he's like, where are you, Adam and Eve? Like, and he knew where they are, right? Same kind of thing. He wants Cain to hear the question and deal with it himself. Why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? He, he knows the answer, but we need to realize this. That particular um, question's important, and especially verse 7. If you do well, will you not be accepted? So God looks at him and says, if you do well, Cain, will you not be accepted? You weren't accepted before because you didn't do well. But if you do well, will you not be accepted? That question, that pursuing of Cain, instruction and vice which is going to follow, that question put out to Cain demands an answer. Answer, Cain. It's a huge question that he's asking him. So you're asking, what does that mean, if you do well? That same kind of phrase is also used in Jeremiah, the, to do well. And in that, in that phrase, it's translated, if you really change. Or maybe another way to understand is, if you do right by obeying. So he's looking at him, he's like, Cain, if you do well, if you really change, if you do right by obeying, if you live a life of faith, not this other kind of life, if you do that, then will you not be accepted? Faith is what God is demanding from us. And you'll be accepted. And he puts that question out to him. And it's demanding an answer. And in the text, Moses seems to say, Cain does not answer that question with words. He just lets it sit out there. But notice even after this, God gives him even more instruction and advice and a a caution. And if you do not do well, or if you do not really change, or if you do not do right what is obeying, if you do not live a life of faith, Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So here we have sin painted as a wild beast, crouching, ready to devour him. Notice the goodness of God in letting him know all this. He's already given him a bad offering. God could have just said, well, you don't, you don't want to follow me. Okay, go about your own way. But God still pursues him, tries to draw him in that you'll be accepted. Watch for sin. Know your heart. Like all this pursuing of God is given to him. By the way, sin right there in verse 7, that's the very first time sin is used in the Bible. It's obviously after that used quite a bit, but that's the very first time sin is mentioned. And it's personified as a violent animal that's ready to crouch and devour us. Very similar to the way the devil's described in 1 Peter 8 as, as a lion. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, uh, Be sober-minded, watchful your adversary. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion, ready, seeking someone to devour. So the morning, every morning you wake up, you get up, you step your foot out of bed, and the moment you step out of bed and you're ready to go, Satan and sin are ready to just devour you unless you think on, okay, God, I got to tr- trust to know the gospel. I got to know who you are and who you say are. I'm going to pursue you in your word, prayer, because they are ready to devour me. They are violent animals that want to crush me. Therefore, I can't let them. I have to know you and believe what you've already done for me. So we need to 
need to be aware of that. This is, this, this particular verse, sin is at the door crouching, ready to, desa- to devour you, is the outworking of Genesis chapter 3. And don't m- miss that this is right after the fall. And as soon as right after the fall happens, we see the outworkings of, this is what happens whenever we all become sinners. It's ready to crush us. And the very second sin recorded in the Bible, Adam and Eve was the first, the very second sin, it's probably the very worst sin that we could do. One of the very worst sins. As soon as the fall happens, the first recorded sin after that is a brother killing a brother. The word brothers, like, if you noticed, I don't know if you, it's, it's seven times, I think it's on purpose, the, the author says brother, 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 because he's trying to highlight for us, this is such a heinous act that he would kill his own brother. It's the natural outworkings. So in verse 8, you have this big question thrown out to him. Will you not be accepted? Answer this. Cain doesn't verbally answer, but instead with his actions, he gives an answer to God. In verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. So here we see his answer. I don't want to quote-unquote do well. I don't want to... Um, really change, do right by a bang, live a life of faith. Instead, I'm going to remain in my anger towards my brother and towards you, God, and what I'm going to do is kill Abel. I'm going to kill him. So, after that it says, the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? So, after the murder happened, the Lord <clears throat> came to Cain and asks another question, very similar to the one before. He knows the answer, and he says, where's your brother? It's not like God's you know, doesn't have any idea. Of course he knows. And so he asks him, where is he? And Cain gives a ridiculous answer. Ridiculous. First phrase, I don't know. It's just a huge lie. I mean, uh, third, third sin recorded in the Bible right there. I don't know. And then a stupid response. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes, you are, you moron. Of course you are. And Jesus actually extends it in the New Testament to say, and the second greatest commandment is that we should love our neighbor as ourselves. So Jesus takes the familial Um, that's given in in Genesis 4 and extends it out to your neighbor, your brother, your sister, your mother, your aunt, your uncle, and your neighbor, the people that live around you, wherever they are. You have a responsibility, God-given, to know them, serve them, love them, take care of them. Every single one of us, your neighbors. All right, back to this. That's kind of a side note. But he gives this dumb answer like, what are you talking about? I don't know where he is, and am I my brother's keeper? You can just, you can see as John 3, 1 John 3 says, he is such a work of the evil one that he just uses these ridiculous answers. He's so hard-hearted to God. God's still amazingly, for the second time, seeking him out. For the second time, seeking him out. And Abel has no one to stand up for him. Abel has no one to come and hold Cain accountable. So the Lord's going to do that for him. And the Lord says... Where's your brother Abel? I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord says, what have you done? The voice, this is, this is amazing. Blood is given a voice and is personified and is screaming out from the ground. It says, the voice of, the, of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. So the Lord's going to come hold Cain accountable for this sin. Third thing I want you to see. God's faithfulness is present when no one else will be. God's faithfulness is present when Abel really has no one else because no one knows what happened besides God. Cain could have easily made up some kind of story to Adam and Eve. I don't know, you know, he, he tripped, whatever. He could, 
but the Lord is going to be the one that's going to come and hold him accountable. God's faithfulness is displayed in this particular place when no one else will be. Let's apply that to your life because many of you might feel like I got no one. No one is with me. No one is for me. God's faithfulness is there. When no one else will be, when no one will lift your head, when no one will be there for you, God is faithful, faithfully there. In your worst time and your best time, whether you have anybody or not, you need to realize, just like he was here for Abel, even in death, he's there for you, faithfully there with you. You need to apply that to your life. Don't let yourself sink down into a hole. Realize that God is faithfully there for you. Some of you, your lives are great, and you're like, ah, I don't think about that, FUD. That doesn't apply to me. Okay, um, give it like an hour. <laughs> give it like a month. Every one of us, every single one of us has our, our valleys, not just our hills. Every one of us, as it says in Matthew, that the storm comes to the righteous and the unrighteous. We're all going to walk through them because we all live in this Genesis 3 world. Every one of us. No one's exempt from walking through a broken world. And because of that, we need to know that God is going to be faithfully present with us, even if no one else is. Likely there are people there, but even if you think they aren't, the Lord is there, and no one is stronger than the Lord. No one. And so his voice is crying out from the ground. And verse 11 says, Now you are cursed from the ground. This is very similar to 3.17. Remember the curse that was extended to man? It says, because, you're not listening to the voice, because you've listened to the voice of your wife, you've eaten of the tree which I commanded, you shall eat of it, curses the ground because of you. Now here, in verse 11 of chapter 4, it says, now you are cursed from the ground. Now this is important, because this is directly tied to the vocation that um, Cain had. Remember, Cain's vocation was he was a worker of the ground, into verse 2. Cain was a worker of the ground. Back then, they didn't have McDonald's. Okay, they didn't like, I'm hungry, go, let me go get me a, a number 2. They didn't have that, like... Cain had to work the ground to eat. That's the way he found sustenance, is working the ground, yielding forth vegetation, and then he gets to eat. And he tells him, now, the one vocation you have that's a worker of the ground, because you've done this, verse 11, now the ground is going to be cursed. So it's even going to be more difficult. Look what it says. And now you're a curse from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. Now, I don't want you to miss this. Because in this, God is still merciful. Still merciful to Cain. We know later on in the law, when someone kills someone, they're supposed to die. And there's an innate understanding already in these people's lives, before the law is even given, that if someone kills somebody, they're supposed to die. They're supposed to die for it. And God doesn't do that to Cain. This is good. This is amazing mercy. Like, God should have easily said, because you've done this, it's time for you to die. But he doesn't. Instead, he will give discipline. He will give punishment. But he still doesn't kill him. Amazing mercy. Amazing mercy that he's given to him. So he's going to give him um, some punishment, and he's also going to give him grace. The punishment is working the ground is going to be difficult, as it says in verse 12. Another punishment is, is right after that in verse 12, you will be a fugitive and wanderer on the earth. So there's, there's a banishment from where he is at this particular place around his own family. So working the ground is difficult. Banishment is also the other punishment. But there's also a grace that he's going to give him. You can see it in verse 15 where it says, And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. So Cain is kind of walking around with everybody knows I'm Cain. Everybody knows I killed my brother. 
and then everybody's going to want to kill me. How do they know that? Because there's innate understanding, even before the law, that if someone kills someone, they should die. And Lord's going to, we don't know what this is, put some kind of mark on him, and this mark out of the, represents the goodness of God, he won't die. So God is really merciful to Cain here, really merciful by letting him live. And we're going to even see some other things that he's going to do that demonstrate his mercy. But we're getting to an interesting verse here, verse 13. Verse 13. Now, there's, verse 13 can be taken two different ways. Um, John Salehammer, a brilliant commentator, says that verse 13 is the central question of the entire chapter 4, the entire narrative. He says this is the central question. It says, Cain says to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. So some people say, this is Cain just being even more of a baby. God, that punishment is terrible. Yeah, you let me live, but now I can't work the ground. But Salehammer looks at it a different way, and I think it's stinking awesome and brilliant. That word punishment can also be translated as iniquity, which puts an entirely different twist on this. It turns Cain from being a big baby for his punishment into a very repentant, remorseful person. That's, that's a very stark contrast. Instead of saying, God, the punishment's too much, it says this. Cain said to the Lord, my iniquity is greater than I can bear. That's an acknowledgement. I'm such a sinner. Lord, this sin that's in me is more than I can bear. I need someone to bear my sin for me because I can't. That changes everything. That points to a need for the offspring. That points for a need for a savior, someone that can bear the weight of the sin that he's acknowledging, I can't bear it anymore. I can't bear it. I need a savior. That's vastly different. Salehammer says, he argues that this is the central question of the narrative. He says that this can be interpreted as remorse and repentance, not just baby whining. And he says, far from complaining about his punishment, Cain was instead expressing remorse over the extent of his iniquity, not the punishment. And God's being very gracious to Cain instead. There's a bounty on Cain's head, likely, and he puts this mark on him. So look what, look what happens here. Verse 13, he exclaims out that there's this, uh, I can't bear this iniquity. Behold, you have driven me today from the ground, and your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a feudative and wonder on earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Let's stop, and I know you're, maybe you're not thinking this, but maybe you are. Who's the whoever? Adam, Eve, Cain, Abel. Abel's gone. Adam, Adam and Eve. And so who's the whoever? Like, who are these whoever's that are mysteriously around that are going to catch him, especially if he's banished? Like, you got to leave Adam and Eve. Go far away from him. Over here. But whoever's over here, but there's just Adam and Eve. So who's that? All right, let's, let's try to, I'm going to try to fill in the blank on that. And maybe you weren't thinking that, but it'll be important in a second. Um, because Cain's also, as he's over there, going to take a wife. And you're like, who's Cain's wife? <laughs> Where'd she come from? There's no e-harmony over in east of Eden and Nod. So who's that? Um, let, let me give you an idea of what I think's going on here. Um, go to chapter 5, verse 3. Go to chapter 5, verse 3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his own image and named him Seth. Now, I know you're going to keep reading and it's going to say Adam um, lived 930 years. Like, dang, they lived a long time back then. So 130, uh, he's just in his prime. He's just getting started. He's like a teenager, right? No, not at all. 130 is an old man. Because we know, as it says about Abraham and Sarah, when she was 100 and had a, had, a, had a child, it calls her an old woman at 100. 
So 130 is an old man. I don't know what 130 and 930, what the difference between those two. It must have just been like barely getting to the, somebody just take me to the bathroom. Like, I don't know what it was like, but there must have been, but at 130, he's an old man, right? He's an old man at 130 and he's having Seth. Now, don't miss this. Um, All the way before that, we know that God created him as a man, as a man. And so that means maybe he was created at age 25. I mean, we don't know, but we know he's created as a man. But we know he's not created as an old man at 130. But he's created at a man to where he can start having children. So 25, 30, 35, I don't know. But he is created as a man. That means from here to 130, there's about 100 years. So immediately he starts fulfilling the Genesis 128 command, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Bang, he has Cain. Bang, he has Abel. And at 130, he has Seth. 100 years later. So... The only logical conclusion we can make, and Moses is not trying to like answer this question directly for us. The only logical question we can have is, Adam and Eve, after they had Cain and Abel, kept fulfilling that Genesis 128 command, being fruitful and multiplying, being fruitful and multiplying, being fruitful and multiplying, for 100 years. So we have no idea how many children they had between Abel and Seth. There were probably tons of kids between Abel and Seth. And so... We fast forwarded in verse 2 from Abel's birth, Cain and Abel's birth to their adulthood, meaning there were still more kids being born. A- Adam and Eve were likely fulfilling Genesis 128. Moses wants to understand that that's what they were doing. So whenever we get to the whoever, or whenever we get to verse 17, Cain had a wife, that's because Adam and Eve were having babies all, all the time for 100 years. Babies everywhere. And they were going places and living places. So when we get to verse 15, 14, and it says, He's a wonder on the earth. Whoever finds me will kill me. That's because... Adam and Eve have been having babies, and they're everywhere. There's children everywhere. And Cain, yes, is going to take probably a sister for his wife. It's gross. I know, it's disgusting. But back then, there was no law against it, and there's a law against it now. But, I mean, there was no other choices, really. You know, it's either my sister or my sister or my sister's daughter. That's it. That's all I got. I got no other choices here. So that's where he was. You know, don't judge him, um, even though we would never do that. All right, so back to this. Um, Unless you're in, no, never mind. <laughs> I was supposed to make a West Virginia book. I won't do it. All right, back to verse 15. Oh, you're cold. I, sh- I am cold. Verse 15. I'm a sinner, just like all of us. All right, 15. Sorry, I'm way wound up. All right, so the Lord said, not so. If anyone kills, so we can see, somebody's going to kill me, God. There's a bounty on my head. I'm going to die. I need somebody to do something. Okay, even more mercy shown to Cain and Abel then, or to Cain, I should say. Then the Lord said, if anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken upon him sevenfold. Seven's all over, this, all over this chapter. There's sevenfold vengeance. There's seven times the brothers mentioned. There's seven generations of Cain that we're going to see um, and, and the rest of the chapter. Seven's all over. This perfect number of God. Moses is doing that on purpose. Um, and the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who should be found him should attack him. So the mark, we don't know what the mark is. We have really no idea to know what that mark is. Um, Salehammer said that the mark, this is brilliant, Salehammer said that the mark is actually living in a city. In just a second, in verse 17, he's going to go to a city. And that city, as you continue in the, in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, if you go to a city, it's a city of refuge. And so nobody can kill me in the city of refuge. And he's saying nobody can kill Cain. So he's saying this, the mark of Cain is that he gets to live in this, a city, a city of refuge. And that's why nobody can kill him. Sounds brilliant. Could be it. I don't know. It could just be that he you know, put a big like, don't kill sign right on his face or something. So who knows what it is? It, we have no idea. But the point is this, um, God's faithfulness is there throughout this set of verses to show 
his grace and mercy. Like over and over, we see undeserved grace and mercy being shown to Cain. God's faithfully, continually showing him grace and mercy. So in your own life, I don't, I don't know that anybody here is as reckless as Cain and maybe as unappreciative of the grace and mercy as Cain. But you are continually, even as a sinner, just like me, daily choosing to rebel against, against God. Don't miss this. The faithfulness of God is still showing you grace and mercy, still beckoning you, still wooing you, still calling you. Come back to Christ. Repent. Realize, my sin's too great to bear. I need a Savior to bear this sin for me. That's Christ. So the faithfulness of God is continually shown as he gives him a mark, as he doesn't kill him, as he lets him live. We're going to see even more grace and mercy that's being expressed to him as he gets to have a family and gets to live in a city. Um, He needs to live in a city because he can't work the ground anymore. You know, you want to eat, go to a city. There's food everywhere. Um, So even mercy as he lets him live in a city. So God's faithfulness, and the fourth thing, God's faithfulness here to show the grace and mercy of God. And then some of the worst verses in the Bible describing people. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. That's, that's kind of where we all are sometimes, east of Eden. We're east of Eden, away from the presence of the Lord. If we recognize that there's places in our lives that are dark, they're just east of Eden. And this is where Cain walks away from God. This very much sounds uh, like... Genesis 3.23, after Adam and Eve had sinned, and it says, therefore the God sent them out of the Garden of Eden. This is Cain walking away from the presence of the Lord. This is a dark, dark verse. We shouldn't just kind of read that haphazardly and think that's no big deal. This is where everybody that's outside of a relationship with Christ lives, east of Eden, outside of the presence of the Lord. should break our hearts that they're there. But the writer puts verse 16 there. Cain went away from the presence of the Lord very intentionally because as soon as he tells us that in verse 16... Cain walked away from the presence of the Lord. Verses 17 through 22 give us seven generations of Cain and give us a visual understanding of what walking away from the expression, the, the, the presence of the Lord will do in generations. What's going to happen in 17 through 22, it's a visual picture of what happens in generations when the, Cain walks away, seven generations, it's even worse. Notice in verse 17, Cain knew his wife, so you know one of those sisters, uh, he, he found her. They got married, conceivably, and uh, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And when he had built a city, Cain built a city. Maybe it was Enoch, but it was probably Cain. Uh, He called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. Some commentators go crazy and like, he shouldn't have done that. You know, read Genesis 11, whenever they're trying to build this city and take over God. God destroys them, confuses their language. Um, but here, he should have named the city after God instead of after his son. I don't know that that's the case. Maybe it was okay. Uh, there's no real clear thing. But in verse, 17, verse 18, we're going to start seeing this seven generations of perpetual falling away. Cain walks away from the presence of the Lord. Seven generations, it gets worse. Watch. Eight, uh, and all you pregnant ladies, here's some great names. Here's some great names. Here we go. Verse, uh, verse 18, Enoch was born Irad. Irad fathered Mahujael. And Mahujael fathered Methuselah. Methuselah fathered Lamech. So there's a lot of good names in there. I wouldn't pick this one because these are all the bad people. Um, And then Lamech took two wives. So the seventh generation, Lamech um, has bigamy. That's two wives, not bigotry. Bigamy, two two wives. So we can already see seventh generation. 
is, is walking away from the plan of marriage. We know from Genesis 2.24, the two shall become one flesh. God's plan for marriage has always been one woman, one man, always here. One man, two women, bigamy. It's a sin. So Lamech is already um, becoming even worse than Cain. Lamech took, took two wives, and that's just crazy anyway. Why would you take two wives? Um, anyway, the name of the one was Adah. The other one was named Zillah. Adah bore Jabel the father of those who dwell in tents, and his brother's name was Jubal. Quite, quite creative there. Jabal and Jubal um, was Jubal, and he was the father of those who play lyre and pipe. Uh, Zillah was also born Tubal Cain, and he was the forger of the instruments of bronze and iron. So Tubal Cain made the instruments. Jubal played them, uh, I guess. I don't know. Uh, and <clears throat> the sister of Tubal Cain was named Nama. Nama actually means pleasant. So maybe she was the one bright spot in them all. Uh, Maybe she was nice to be around and just hated her family. Who knows? But then you get to verse 23. So we already have one sin of Lamech, of, of bigamy, uh, polygamy, if you will. That just means multiple wives. Bigamy is two. And then you have Lamech uh, going to, in a poetry form, boast to his wives, dose, uh, about this sin that he did, which is even worse than Cain's in his, in his uh, summation. It says, Adam and Zillah. Hear my voice. Can you imagine your husband singing to you? Like, I'm going to sing to you about how I killed somebody just for scratching me. Look at this, what happens. Adam and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. So this young man did a little mere flesh wound on him and decides it's time to kill him. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, notice the, the continuing of seven. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, Lamech's is 77-fold. Oh, you're awesome, Lamech. Everybody thinks you're awesome. Um, so here we have two sins, which are uh, bigamy and killing a man for no reason. And seven generations later, Lamech is saying, I'm far more sinful than Cain. Look how awesome I am. So we have really bad circumstances. And then you can move over to the other side. And Adam knew his wife again. She bore a son. We've already read this. Um, and called his name Seth. For God has appointed me for an offspring instead of Abel. Cain, for Cain killed him. To Seth was also born a son and his son shall be called Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. That sounds good. So we've got bad and we've got good. So here, what I want you to see is <clears throat> God is faithful and present in both tough times and in good. These people right here in this particular set of verses from 17 to 26 are experiencing very awful times, Cain, and better times or restoration over here with Adam and Eve. And you need to realize that God is faithful and he's faithfully there both in the tough times and the good times. Whenever your times are tough, your only hope is the Lord. But when your times are good, it's not because of your hand. It's because the Lord's hand is with you as well. And we need to walk in realizing that when tough times are here, God wants me to press into him, not rebel. But when times are good, I don't get kind of put it on cruise control and go. Instead, I still press into the Lord and say, this is only because of your hand. So in your own lives, bad times, good times, readily acknowledge that all that is a declaration from God to saying, I'm faithful, depend on me, and be with me. Now, I want to uh, paint the picture for us, although I, I think we're all there. Paint the picture for us one more time, just to bring us to what's going on here before we get to verse 25. I want to zero in or zoom in on 25 and 26 again. But I want to paint the picture for us. So we've got Adam and Eve, Genesis 2, married, naked, not ashamed, know each other completely, in perfect relationship with God. If anyone understands more acutely and more perfectly what it can be like as a human to have a relationship with God that's unhindered and perfect, it's Adam and Eve. Nobody in this room can. But Adam and Eve literally understand what it's like. 
And then all of a sudden, they willingly choose to break off that relationship by sinning. And now they're living in a life where this really stinks. We just had the perfect relationship with our creator. Something that everyone in this room and everybody that's ever lived is wired to desire. I want to know him. I want to have a perfect relationship with him. And now it's been broken. It's all over. Everything's done. I'll never get it back. And then God says, well, actually, you are going to get it back. And it's going to be through an offspring. An offspring's going to come. And that relationship that you have had with your creator, which every one of us wants, is going to be restored just like it was, a return. And so in, Genesis, in, in 4, when we're there, we're like, offspring's needed. Offspring's needed. Adam and Eve, we need an offspring, need an offspring, need an offspring. And all of a sudden, Cain and Abel are given. They're like, yes! offspring which means our sin problem is going to be taken care of and we're finally going to be restored back to this relationship and they knew as it tells us in verse um the end of 25 abel is that person abel's the one that's going to restore it and all of a sudden they're going through life cain kills abel and in their mind it's all over again there's no hope we had an offspring that was going to take care of the sin problem and restore us back to our right relationship with God that we so long for and everyone has. And it's over. Cain killed him. Why did you do that, Cain? So they're in this particular moment right here where they're thinking, we had our chance, but everything's over. There's no hope. Now we're walking down the path of never having a relationship with God again. hundred years later, hundred years later, when Adam's 130, that's a long time to think. It's over. Now we feel the full weight of verse 25 where they think, I'm never going to have a relationship with my creator again. Then look what the Lord does. And Adam knew his wife again and she bore a son and called him Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. So I had all these children None of those were it. It was only Abel, and that was my only hope. And I thought everything was over, but God has now brought someone who is just like Abel. Everything's redeemed, and now I have hope again because of Seth. And that's why her declaration in verse 25 is way more different than one. It's not like, look at me, I made a man. Woo, I'm awesome, and God help me. Here she's at her end, like she realizes, all I have is God. I thought everything was over. I thought everything was done. And God still was faithful and came through. Therefore, my expression of the birth of Seth is going to be far different than the way it was before. I didn't do it. Notice she says, God has appointed. The word Seth means granted. It means to set or to place or to appoint. God has done this. God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel because Abel killed Cain. For Cain, I'm sorry, uh, Cain killed Abel. So there's a huge change in Eve's heart. She's no longer prideful. She's broken down. She's brought to a place of, my only hope is God. And guess what? God came through. And he always does. He always, always, always keeps his promises. That's the sixth thing I want you to see. The faithfulness, God is faithful to keep his promises promises all of his promises that he said are yes in christ jesus and he always keeps them whatever's going on in your life 
don't miss that God is faithful to keep his promises. And then this turn in 26 is where it starts getting awesome. We saw 17 through 22 of the seven generations of how awful it can be with Cain. And in chapter 5, as you see the seven generations that follow Adam, Adam and his seven generations, there's a big contrast between how awful they are and how awesome these are in chapter 5. We'll do that later. But what's going to happen here, it says, to Seth was also uh, a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Why did it tell us about Seth's son? Why didn't it just say, Eve was broken, she exclaimed out that God's appointed for me an offspring, and then at the time people began to call upon them. Why does it throw in this little thing that says, and then Seth had a son by the name, and his name was Enish, and so just remember that. And then back over here. Well, Enish, the name Enish means weakness. It means weakness. One commentator says, it is the consciousness of human frailty. That means the awareness that we are weak, weak people. We are frail, which means if we're frail, we have to be utterly dependent upon someone who is far stronger than us. It's the consciousness of utter frailty, symbolized by the name Enish, weakness, that heightens Adam and Eve's awareness that they are now of utter dependence upon God. And that's the situation that intuitively sends them into a time of prayer where they call upon the name of the Lord, worship which means in your own life, only when you are finally broken, weak, and you realize that your only hope is God, will you start calling upon the name of the Lord and worshiping Him. When you still think you strut around like a peacock and you got it all and you're doing it, you'll never, ever, ever be brought to this place. But every single one of us has to. Every single one of us has to. We need to be just like Enosh. And when that happened, at that time, people were going to, quote, call upon the name of the Lord. At that time can be translated, now. Now people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now is the time to seek God in worship. Now is the time to be known as the Lord. Now is the time to cry out to the Lord. Not later, not another time. Be broken, realize you're frail, and now in weakness say, God, you're my only hope. There's no way that I can do this myself. This is interesting. As we noticed in 17 through 22, the hand of mercy of God is given to Cain, and they're doing things. They're building cities. They're doing and creating art. I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty amazing, the kind hand of God to still let them do that. One commentator says, Cain's firstborn and, six, and successors, they pioneered cities, and they pioneered the civilized arts. That's very kind for God to be able to allow them to do that, even though they totally didn't deserve it. But in contrast, Seth's firstborn and successors pioneered worship. That's when they began to call upon the name of the Lord because they were broken and they realized they had nowhere else to go. Which means that's where we should be. Broken, frail. It's where we are. If you're honest, you're weak. I'm weak. We're all weak. We're all dead, as the Bible says, in sin. And we need a Savior. Interestingly enough, if you read the New Testament, Luke gives his genealogy. And in Luke chapter 3, as he's saying, we're supposed to be looking for this offspring. The offspring's supposed to come. If you look at Luke chapter 23, uh, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 3, verse 23 through 38, he's given a genealogy. If you get to the very end, 
it says the son of God, the son of Adam, the son of Seth, and you go all the way through the genealogy. In verse 23, it says it ends on Jesus, that he was the man that is the fulfillment of this offspring. An offspring finally did come. The Savior, where, and all of us in verse 13 saying, Jesus, this iniquity is too much for me to bear. I need you to bear it. He did bear it on the cross for us all who are weak, that when we call out to him, we are now forever forgiven, forever known, forever justified, forever declared innocent. And all we know is the righteousness, the perfect relationship with God because of Jesus, and we will know it forever, perfectly in heaven, forever, for those that call on him, for those that by faith live according to his word, for those that call upon the name of the Jesus and are saved, those who are believers, however you want to define it. God is faithful and kept his promise and gave us the offspring in Christ. And now every one of us can be forgiven of our sin. And even more than that, as it says in the end of verse 26, every one of us can call upon the name of the Lord and bring our best worship. And I think that's what we should do now. Not just because it's time to sing and Jordan's got a guitar on his, on his chest, right? That's not, that's not, that's not why. That's part of it, but even far larger is because God is worthy and he's been faithful in your life. So let's stand and give our best worship right now, but as we go, let's give our best worship to God in everything we do, caring for our neighbor, reading, having faith, trusting, sharing, killing sin, realizing the faithfulness of God, acknowledging him and being grateful for everything he's done. Let's live lives of worship and give him our best and call upon his name. If you want to talk, I'll be in the back. I'd love to be able to talk to you. If you're not a believer, come find me, and I'd love to tell you how to become a Christian. I'm going to pray and turn it over to Jordan, and he'll lead us in the time of worship. Don't be hard-hearted like Cain. Be frail and weak like Eve, and give yourself to the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your mercy. I pray for us all, God, that we wouldn't think we have this. We don't have this. We're all weak, weak, frail, dead people without Christ. God, I pray that you would come now and move in our hearts and cause us to give you our best worship like Abel did, that we would call upon your name like Enosh and Seth. We love you, God, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.